Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to our fourth webinar with the Confirmation Project. This morning, um, we're going to be learning from Drs. Lisa Kimball and Terry Elton. Lisa's at Virginia Theological Seminary, and Terry is um, at Luther Seminary. And they're going to be talking to us about reimagining youth confirmation, themes, practices, and particularities. They've been some of the two of the steering committee members for this project and have been offering some really great insights into thinking about um, this project and how it relates to ministry, um, congregational ministry. Um, I just want to let you know, if you haven't attended a webinar before, that we have three other ones, or a number of other ones, a collection now, that are online on our website. Our website is theconfirmationproject.com, and on that website you can do a number of things. Um, you can watch these webinars or listen to them as a podcast. You can also um, go on and uh, let us know who you are and sign up to get newsletters or updates. Um, if you're interested also, if you're one of the five denominations that's part of our study, if you sign up, you can let us know that you need a survey and we can send you a survey. Um, we also have some resources available in the form of portraits. This is one of the ways we're doing research. Um, it's a, we're doing congregational visits and then writing up portraits of congregations. And we now have four of those available to read. So I'd invite you to visit our website and check that out. Um, just to let you know how our time will be spent today, uh, Lisa and Terry are going to be sharing um, from some of their research with us. And throughout that time, you should be able, if you're interested, to ask us questions or ask pose questions to Terry and Lisa. At the end, it, with about, uh, I don't know, ten, five or ten minutes remaining, I will reappear and then pose those questions to Lisa and Terry. So I invite you to, to send those in as they're talking, and I will collect them as we go. So, without uh, taking any more time, I want to introduce you to Lisa and Terry, and um, thank you so much for being here and sharing your research with us. Thank you, Katie. I'm Terry, and um, it's a great to be with you. I was uh, one of the members from the qualitative team, uh, along with Lisa, and I'm excited to share some of the learnings from our team. As a way of introduction, both Lisa and I are going to just say a little bit about our interest in this project. Um, before coming to teach at Luther, I worked for 16 years in a congregation, and 10 of those years I worked specifically with confirmation, and so have a deep interest in it, was able to um, do a lot of innovation and work within it from a congregational standpoint. But what was interesting uh, being brought into this is confirmation is just one piece of a whole larger uh, concern for me about really youth discipleship. And I think sometimes we can get fixated on confirmation and kind of lose the whole picture of that youth, the call to youth discipleship. And so one of the really interesting things for me about being brought into this project to work with the ELCA in particular was to think about the two in relationship. And I feel like this has given me, uh, on this side of the research, even a more hopeful stance of how many congregations are seeing confirmation not as a have-to from their tradition but really as an opportunity to, to see where young people are today and to bring them into a, a lifelong of faith. So that's what my interest is. And greetings. I'm Lisa Kimball. Um, I am uh, on the faculty at Virginia Seminary and the director of the Center for the Ministry of Teaching here. And like Terry, spent many years in congregations and working at a judicatory level, at the diocesan level in the Episcopal Church um, before coming onto the faculty. And I think the thing that drew me to the project when I was invited to join the team was my curiosity and observation that confirmation, particularly in the Episcopal Church, but I think across what were once mainline perhaps denominations, is incredibly resilient. It continues to show up in most of our congregations and in, across our traditions, and yet I and maybe you have experienced it done very poorly in many of those settings. So there aren't very many parts of our church that we can do as poorly as we've often done confirmation that keep showing up. And um, I thought there's something there that is both holy of God and an opportunity for us as formation leaders, as educators, to, to really understand and to begin to look for models that are not broken and models that are really life-giving, as Terry says, and, and hopeful. So I was very intrigued to say, what is it that young people and our churches need and want in this domain we have often called confirmation? And how might we bring 
really good research and understanding alongside of that to enhance, enrich, and deepen what I've come to call this critical time for faith intensification. What I think is so lovely in most of our churches, and many of them are very small, is that when clergy and lay leaders and parents take seriously the fact that they have young people in their midst and say, oh gosh, there's this piece of a tradition, a rite uh, called confirmation, they sometimes and often now are seeing an opportunity to be intentional about a very rich, intensifying something, process, experience for young people. And that's what we want to share with you today, are some of the highlights from the research that we've been doing and what we're learning from places that are inviting young people into healthy relationships with the congregation and finding ways to help them grow deeper and wider in their everyday faith. Thank you, Lisa. Before we go into some of the themes and practices and particularities, we want to remind us all what the question, the research question that we've been studying. So um, it should come up on your screen. It says, our question is, what is the state of confirmation and equivalent practices within five denominations that practice infant baptism? Um, some of our uh, denominations actually call it confirmation. Some have widened that but the practices are similar, so that's why the language was within that. And we did a mixed method, method approach. Um, the survey that Katie talked about is part of what we did, and um, that was done for young people, it was done for leaders, it was done for parents, and that has its own set of methodology. Today, what we want to highlight is some of the learnings that we've had from the qualitative side. So we're going to focus on that piece of it. Well, the, the survey was kind of more mapping. We had the opportunity in each of these denominations to pick out four congregations and look more deeply, and then five camps, one in each of the denominations. And so as we did, we looked for what are some places that are doing some robust, meaningful confirmation uh, ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that they're real jazzy and they're um, totally innovative, some were more traditional, some were in struggling areas, kind of didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have a lot of kids, as, as Lisa noted, many of our congregations in all these denominations are small. And so we tried to get a whole array of what those, of a, what those kind of congregations were about, and we spent a lot of time making sure they were across the country in, in different parts, kind of representing different geographic areas of, of our church as well. Um, and I would also add, importantly, different ethnic and, and racial yes. communities also to the extent that we have those diversities in our traditions. Yes, yeah, for sure, thank you. We had the opportunity to do work with, for me, a new methodology called portraitures. Um, it was a methodology um, that we had the opportunity to learn about from um, Jessica Hoffman Davis and Sarah uh, Lawrence Lightfoot. And what I really appreciated is, as a researcher, it gave me a way to think deeply about what's going on, but it also was very appreciative. So it was looking for the good, looking for the elements. It wasn't going in critiquing. It was finding the good that they were doing. And then the way that we got to write it up was to make a, a word portrait, um, to, to make a picture. It's not everything. We couldn't find out everything about all of these, but it was a way to tell a story and to bring people in. And I will say, I think, Lisa, you and I have had this conversation um, the people that we gave when I gave our portraits back, people said, yeah, this is us. This is a story that, that is true. It's not everything, but it's a, it's a from the outside in kind of view of this ministry. So um, that's the portraits that Katie was talking about. And so I encourage you to go and look at some of those. But that's the, the work of the body of the research that we're working with today. And so in those portraits, um, what we were trying to raise, hold up and, and lift up to a wider audience were some of the patterns, the practices of confirmation in those local settings. And as Terry said so well, we, we were very deliberate. With only 20 site visits across the whole country, we try, and in five denominations, we've tried to be very deliberate about choosing congregations that in some way represent issues and contexts that many other congregations might recognize. So we've gone from very large congregations to very small congregations, programs that have been robust for many years, programs that are kind of newly being re renovated or recreated, uh, programs that have one young person in them. We just posted a portrait about a Methodist church that has one young person in a confirmation program who's participating via Skype because she's living in Switzerland. 
Um, and then we have congregations with hundreds of kids involved in their confirmation program. But what we were looking for was resonance. We were looking for ways in which there was some consistency um, of intention and consistency of practice across these different congregations. And what I want to share with you now are some of the themes that we're beginning to see across all that diversity um, and across these theolog the theological spectra that are also our traditions. And they probably won't surprise you if you're in a congregation that has been committed to working with young people through a confirmation process for a while, you probably might have come up with a list a lot like this yourself. But for example, the first um, mention that I think I brought up just as I came to the team was how resilient confirmation is. And what we think is so valuable across the congregations we visited is that there is something in the DNA of the congregation and of the tradition that they represent that says there is this right, this right that is connected to baptism that is somehow important in the transformation of a young person's life from childhood to adulthood. Um, it's a resilient opportunity. It's something that the congregation wants to celebrate. It's something that the clergy and lay leaders and often the educators in the congregation see as their responsibility to um, focus and to bring into the regular ongoing ecology, as we often call it, of the congregation. So the second theme that we have, um, that we've seen across all of these congregations, is that the, the thriving confirmation programs and processes are very contextual. They are owned by that local congregation. And what we mean by that is they still call it confirmation, but they build on the strengths of that particular place. They recognize the demographics of who they are. They recognize the, the strengths, as, as um, Terry said, the appreciative inquiry approach, in a sense, of their own local setting. So they recognize where they have resources in human, in human beings and where they have resources theologically, where they have resources in relationship to their neighborhoods. And they also recognize the particular young people who are in their setting. So it's highly contextual. The programs that we have seen that excite us the most are programs that have listened deeply to the teenagers in their midst and have listened to the questions that are being asked verbally and also the questions that are being lived in their lives. And then the congregation has in some form wrapped itself around those young people and created a highly contextual opportunity for confirmation preparation. We see therefore that the programs are very adaptive and responsive. They're not static. While many of the programs we visited do use a curriculum. Some of them use a denominational curriculum. Some of them use a resource that has been produced or published by a particular publishing house or an author. Most of them use that in the context of a very responsive, what I would call a formative process of ongoing assessment. They're constantly asking the questions, is this working? Are people, the young people in particular, receiving the gifts that we're trying to offer? And are they engaging with the texts, with the scripture, with the life of this congregation? Are they building on the practices of faith that we hold so dear? Are they beginning to come to a place where they can respond authentically as themselves with words of their own about faith? And that kind of responsiveness means that the programs are constantly adapting. We also have seen that these congregations that have healthy confirmation programs have deeply committed and identifiable leadership, and they've committed resources to confirmation. They may be a tiny church, but you can point to the people who say, we are not going to miss the opportunity to raise up young people and offer them a rich confirmation program. So there's a commitment on the part of elected leadership, volunteer leadership, and certainly clergy, and the resources of people, you know, time, talent, and treasure in that congregation to say we're going to offer the best we can for confirmation. We have found, no surprise again for any of us involved in youth ministry, that the confirmation programs that are thriving and that are engaging young people most authentically have high levels of parental investment. Now I'm saying investment, not necessarily commitment. We saw programs where young people are very involved. Their parents may not actively be doing much in the life of the confirmation program, but the parents are invested in helping young people get to church, in communicating back and forth from household to congregation the needs of their young people. They're invested in saying this matters and that they want their teenager to be involved in some significant way. And finally, we saw a theme that is very common now, 
that people who are committed to doing confirmation well have already embraced this idea that it is not an end in itself. It is a process in an ecology of lifelong faith formation, a lifelong process. And it is a critical bridge between a time of um, adolescence, um, maybe pre-adolescence in some cases. There were some confirmation programs that work with pre-teens. But it was an intentional time of bridging a level of understanding and practice of faith toward and into a young adult experience of being a person following the way of Jesus. It is not graduation from the church. It is not graduation from the Christian formation programs in those congregations. We hope it is not graduation from the denomination or the tradition that has raised them up. It is a process of saying, you now have skills and knowledge and language to carry your faith forward. Thank you, Lisa. I, I have one story I have to share on that last one about it being a bridge. One of the sites that I got to visit in our time that we were with some of the current students in confirmation, some of the uh, quote graduates in the sense of that program that they were involved with the high school ministry and then some of the mentors and parents. One of the students that was actually in it kind of looking to his peers ahead of him and to some of the parents said, what I really like is they don't treat me like I'm in Sunday school anymore. We don't kind of revisit the stories in the same way and they're helping me um, kind of look, looking to his peers that are older, kind of make this my own. And, and so he saw this connection. And this was from a group that was early on making some changes, but he had already saw that they were taking him seriously. So those are the ways. It, it wasn't um, always perfect, but just hearing a kid, a young person, understand that is kind of fun. I would like to turn to some practices. How, what does this look like, or, or how do we start getting it on the ground? Um, one of the things that both worked with the methodology and is for me a joy to get to go into a ministry and say what are your strengths? Um, these ministries, both the ones I think that we each visited, we got to see that firsthand, but then as you read these other portraits from other places, these were congregations that said here are our strengths and here are the needs, how do we put those together? And so um, in one of our congregations that I got to visit in New Jersey, um, they have a 40% of their congregation is a Latino. And they are in, there are a couple congregations in that New Jersey Synod that have more ethnic diversity, but the majority of the ELCA congregations in that Synod are not. They're Caucasian, many in the middle class. And so not only are they working this particularly in their place, but this is a part where they do confirmation camp where everybody comes together. And this little church with this small group of people that they're fostering are bringing their assets, not only using them within their congregation, but bringing those to the whole synod in confirmation camp and bringing some um, questions of diversity and justice and, and economics, uh, all kinds of stuff into that conversation. That was a really fun way, rather than feeling excluded, and that's about an environment. Not only could they name their strengths in their context, but the ability to, to share them with others. But there are all kinds of ways that this was coming. What is it to use the assets within um, a congregation and say, how, how might they play in to confirmation? Um, number two, attending to relationships. On the one hand, one could say this is all about relationships, and on the one hand it is. Uh, on the other hand, there's content and all kinds of other stuff here. But the reason that, for me, tending to relationships is such a key practice is that all across all the board, the content was always put in an environment of relationality. Who's this student? Who's this group of students? Where are we today? What's the situation with these families? The sense of um, content was not trumped by the relational uh, and communal strength of these ministries. And so I watched the intentionality of different in, in the write-ups and in the, in the conversations that I had. Do the kids know each other to start with? If not, how do we get to know each other? If they do, how do we take these relationships deeper? How do we both connect kids within confirmation and confirmation to the congregation as a whole? All this kind of intentionality about tending relationships. Because in the end, I think the bridging 
is a significant part of what holds it is not the content, is not a belief system, it's the relationality. It's being a part of community. One of the congregations that I studied in, Co in Colorado, the students talked about the deep connection as they talked deeper about their faith and how they don't go to school together, um, but, but church and being with these uh, adults, being with these other peers, being with other adults like parent, their parents' age but aren't their parents, all of that is something they could get at church that helped them live their faith beyond. Um, confirmation that helped them grow deeper into the questions were held in these relationships. So the sense of tending those relationships. The Karen, next, may, I just, yeah. may I just insert quickly there? Um, there is a program called Confirm Not Conform and Laura Darling who oversees that program has this wonderful Twitter feed that she she keep, she collects tweets that young people send from various confirmation programs across all denominations and she consistently finds that the young people who give positive reflections about their confirmation experience are able to talk about the fact that the peer group that they are in relationship with is what makes the difference. The confirmation programs where young people are tweeting negative and, and whiny and critical comments are consistently places where the kids feel left out, the kids feel they don't belong, they don't feel valued, they don't feel connected. That's at the core of any youth ministry. But what I love about what Terry's saying and what we're finding is that it's not only cultivating the relationships across between peers, but right. in programs that I visited, the congregations are really serious about follow-up after confirmation. So when young people graduate from the high school and maybe leave the congregation for college or the military or yeah. some form of, of public service, um, they try to keep them in, in contact with the next generation of confirmants. They try to invite them to be some kind of mentor. They are constantly bringing them back in. Same with some of the parents. Um, several congregations I visited, parents who had young people in the confirmation program were informed enough about what the kids were doing that they then sought out their own, in the Episcopal tradition, confirmation preparation or reaffirmation preparation of their baptism. So the sense of the, of the relationships being tended is, is practical in terms of building a robust and dynamic group of young people to meet together and learn together. But it also has this sort of evangelistic and formative benefit beyond the actual program that we're looking at. Great. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, mentoring is a particular kind of relationship that has been tended. And it was not surprising to me that there was a lot of mentoring going on. What I think was surprising was the depth, at least, I heard people talking about that kind of relationship. It's not a token. It's not like, oh, quick, go memorize this and it's check off. You know, quick, have a mentor for five weeks and then check that off. They really had seen that as an opportunity to connect the person to, to another adult in the congregation. One and that, that, like what Lisa was saying, was beyond a programmatic um, element. It was really about what does it mean to live your faith beyond a program. What does it mean to be a lifelong follower of Jesus? And what is another fellow journeyer asking? What kinds of questions that weren't that that had content issues, but it was really more about how do you integrate this belief into your everyday life? The the one of the most uh, powerful stories was one that came for me out of one of my visits. Was they do a mentoring for six weeks in um, Lent? But they keep that mentor for several years. They, it's a three-year program, so they ha it, they do it for three years. And one of the women that I interviewed that was a mentor, she said uh, this this dad had asked if she would be a mentor for her his daughter, and she knew the dad, and she said, "Sure, I would love to be. It would be an honor." And she had been a mentor before for others, so they had traveled through that. At the very end of confirmation time the dad got sick and eventually died and so in the year after confirmation or she after she was confirmed the daughter was really struggling with her faith so not surprisingly but what was so powerful to me was this mentor said this person hasn't been to church but the church has not forgotten her i check in with her i am the church to this person and it is my job to be a part of that. And she didn't feel that was a have to. She just said, this is totally my part of what my mentoring this and I have an opportunity that others haven't. That for me was a powerful testimony
for how this community saw that relationship. We are church together. And so I think there are different stories about that mentoring, but that sense of here's a one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship that gets to go deeper than a curriculum or that a time um, allotment of a program. And the mentors talk a lot about how much their faith is for sure. is growing because of that relationship. And you know, I have yeah. one congregation that actually yeah. has too many people volunteering to be mentors because their experience has been so worthwhile. And so they've had to try to create a, a cycle of mentors and, and opportunities for those mentors in waiting to continue to be part of yeah. adult formation opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. The last two that I want to highlight are kind of the, the flip side to the relationships. In addition to relationships, they're exploring beliefs, and especially in a time, um, I had some congregations that lived in Christendom in some ways, in sense where it was really uh, okay, cool thing to go to church, but I had some co communities that it was very countercultural to be a, a part of church. And both of those settings, if you put them on a continuum, were saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? What are the core beliefs of our faith? And it came uh, as much from the students, we're going to talk about in a minute, as from the denomination or from the pastor or from the leadership. But it was that conversation of what does it mean to be Christian? What do, who is Jesus? And being able to talk about that, not only in the lingo of church, but in their own, in their own language. And then moving that towards and I'm going to affirm publicly in front of other people, in front of my peers, in front of my parents, that I believe this stuff. That I, uh, and again, because these are denominations that practice infant baptism, this is not a sacrament, but it is a right, and it is a sense of some ownership, and it is a sense of being uh, shaped and formed by a community that they want to say, yeah, and I'm going to be an active part of this at this point. I'm going to turn it over to you, Lisa. Well, and I just would add to that that um, we've had some really interesting conversation among the faculty on this research team about the the kind of the, the a new interest in giving testimony in in traditions that have not necessarily done that often. Um, this whole notion of how do, what does it mean to proclaim our faith, to tell our stories, and we saw that in a number of these confirmation programs that there were structured opportunities for young people to make these public affirmations of faith and that the congregations as a result of that were becoming more confident and comfortable um, with other forms of testimonial and other parts of their, their congregational life. So it's, it's congregational development and formation that's coming as, you know, as a sort of fruit of a rich confirmation program. So we then um, have looked a little bit at, if you look at these themes in conversation with these practices, what we've begun to see is what we're describing as three significant areas of hopeful shift, three ways in which uh, confirmation today is being practiced uh, thoughtfully and intentionally. And there's some real shifts from the way it might have been when some of us went through confirmation. The first is um, in the area of purpose. Um, and then why are we doing confirmation? The, con the programs we're visiting are teaching us some things about not throwing um, the baby out with the bathwater, not giving up on the roots of the theological significance of confirmation, but are rather saying our, oh, our initial point of purpose has shifted and where we are beginning is something slightly different from where we began maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. We've seen shifts in pedagogy, which is our language for how do we go about doing this work of forming faith with young people. What are the models of teaching and learning that these congregations are using that are so that the young to which the young people are responding so well? And then context. We see this significant reimagining, reinterpreting what we mean by context, the place and the set of relationships in which confirmation is being offered. So I'm going to start with pedagogy. Um, with purpose, I'm sorry, and um, to the kind of first theme that kind of comes together in this hopeful shift for us around purpose is that what we're seeing is that the congregations that are doing confirmation really well and with great hope have recognized that they have to find ways to engage with young people before they start to present the doctrine. So it's not enough to say we're going to start a confirmation program on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, everybody who's 14 please sign up and we will teach you the catechism of our tradition. 
Um, clearly, kids, parents, folks are not responding to that today for many, many reasons. Some very real in terms of the demands on their lives, and some more tragic, perhaps, in terms of their loss of connection to the tradition. But there are thoughtful ways for us to reach out to young people where they are, as the people that they are, build on the strengths of their lives and their interests. And so what we've seen are these programs whose purpose is still to teach the faith, to pass on the tradition. But they're recognizing that there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done to really nurture relationships with young people, to begin to be a program that is actually and authentically responding to the spiritual hunger of young people. How do they do that? The churches that have programs that have been robust for a while, have something that is sort of passed on between generations of kids. So young people who went through a confirmation program that's worthwhile have created something in the imagination of younger children in that congregation, something they're looking forward to. That's the easiest transmission. That sense that there is something worthy of my time. My friends say the retreat is really cool. My friends say that the mission trip that you do in confirmation is amazing. They start to see something they want to be a part of. But it's much more often that the clergy, the lay leaders, and even the parents have to find ways to listen to young people before they even know that they're being considering they're considering confirmation and say, you know, there's a lot of stress in your life in this high school. Um, it's hard to be a teenager today. There's a lot of pressure on you to do everything well, to be an athlete, to be a musician. If you're from a middle class household, there's this sense that you're always rushing places. What do you long for? A lot of kids will say, just a time to let my hair down, to be quiet, to be with friends, to be somewhere where nobody's asking more of me. So how do we engage young people in places of rest and begin to bring them into community so that they know each other and there's a place of formation that is just holy space? Um, maybe it's around social justice issues. Maybe it's around needs of your community. Maybe it's around current events. Maybe it's around a, young people needing a thoughtful and structured way to deal with questions of race and race relations and um, police brutality in their community. Whatever that point of engagement is, how can you hear the still small voice of God and the deep questions of teenagers? Um, and that's the place to begin, engagement. Then the next thing that we've learned about purpose is that the congregations that are doing confirmation really well have recognized that the goal and purpose of their confirmation program is not to get the kids confirmed. It's not to check off the rite, the ritual, this beautiful service. It's not even the party after it. It's actually this robust intensification opportunity for them to become lifelong followers of Jesus, for them to actually understand who they are in relationship to God the Creator and who they are in relationship to the Son of God. And in doing that, they can experience the value of Christian community, the value of being with other people who share that narrative. So they're very clear that the horizon of their confirmation program is wanting to nurture young people in a process that will take them out into the world, that will be with them forever, that is sustained both by prayer and practice wherever they are. So it's the shift from focusing on making you a Lutheran or making you an Episcopalian, or making you a Methodist, and sort of getting that membership into your DNA. And it's the sense that we really want you to be Christian, and we are very proud of our denominational tradition. We want to share the story, the narrative, through our expression of that. But the first piece is this lively engagement with the God we follow and the Son of God we call Jesus. So it's personal faith being part of a larger tradition that um, provides a narrative and it's this connecting to a local group of people who are doing their best to be faithful and recognizing that it's not easy and recognizing that it's radically countercultural and that the world we live in wants to sort of marry um, kind of consumerism and Christianity in a way that we as this research team are discovering is less and less meaningful to teenagers. And finally, what we really see is that the purpose shift is that confirmation has become this process, not these sort of um, isolated episodic classes with a big ceremony at the end, but it's this process, this time of learning that is 
intended to be relevant to young people in their life situation at that time. So it's in, in a form of intensification that asks something of them. There is a requirement that they want to commit and to put their time and their effort to this process. And what young people are telling us over and over again is, I didn't really know what I was going to the first time I went. My mom made me go, or I sort of I had felt like I had to show up. But as soon as I got there, fill in the blank, the the priest, the pastor, the lay leader, the other teenagers there, they were really nice to me. Or there was really good pizza. And while we were eating the pizza, somebody started telling their story about why they come to church. And I realized that it wasn't so geeky or boring or silly or irrelevant. They start to realize that confirmation is this opportunity for them to be truly themselves, completely honest about what they know and don't know, what they believe and what they don't and what they doubt, and to have a place where all of that is safe, where all of that is being supported by a wider system of adults throughout the congregation. And they begin to see that their story and the Christian story actually have a lot in common. So the question we want you to be holding as you're moving forward with us today is, how is confirmation actually meeting, in your context, the spiritual hungers of young people? And equally, once you are doing that, how are you meeting um, the expectation that you are teaching the beliefs and practices of your tradition? Thanks, Lisa. As we were thinking about how are they teaching, how are they actually engaging in this learning community, there were some really interesting findings. So, for example, um, we already talked about this balance between relationality and content. But there's also um, a shift that I think has taken place where, in, at least in the ELCA, I, it literally in our documents, it says the pastor is responsible in previous generations for teaching. And many of us, even on the team, remember sitting in a classroom with the teacher talking at us, and that was often the pastor. Well, that, sh that is rarely the case in these. There may be an element where the pastor is in the teacher role, but it's really about putting content and learning in this relational environment that takes the agency of the young person seriously. And I think this is perhaps a, a shift that's taking across place in learning environments as a whole. I don't think this is just in the church, but the sense of honoring the curiosity and the questions of the young people. So one of the places that I was at, the young people, they set up an environment where the young people are taking the small catechism in the Bible and the set of questions, and they were actually digging in, and they were actually teaching each other in the midst with parents there and with staff and, and um, pastors there, but they were, quote, equally on the playing field as teaching and learning with regard to that. So I think what does it mean as we talk about a shift from not only content and coming from the expert or a person in the know towards the young people, but what does it mean to have relationships with the teacher and the learners and to have a community that matters, but also to let their voice into the, into the learning. And that voice begins maybe with some questions, but it also grows. One of the things that was really fun for me is to hear in a couple of the different places I visited, young people say, well, I learned I had a passion for this issue. And I actually got to come back from this mission experience and teach something to the whole congregation. That had nothing to do with confirmation. But what happened is their questions were honored, they learned out of that, and then they got to be a teacher or they got to be a voice or they got to be uh, in a role uh, of helping others bring into that as well. So I think, what does it mean to have our teaching and learning draw on the agency of the young people and bring them into the teaching and learning process is significant. The other shift within pedagogy is that um, this was not just all about doctrine, or this was not just all about how do I pray. This was, um, I like the word, life-wide. This brought in all different kind of parts of who they were, and so it was... Um, looking at what does it mean for me um, if, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, what does it mean to care for uh, my neighbor that is, an, is a first-generation immigrant in some of, in, in my, one my case? Or what does it mean to care for this person at my school? 
this sense of how do I bring this idea of faith into my everyday life. One of the places that did this best in their teaching was uh, one of the congregations I studied did a little bit longer chunks of time. They met twice a month and they would actually go on field trips. This happened to be in New Jersey and they were re talking about the exile and they actually went to a detention center and talked with people that wasn't in too far from them and said, who are the people in exile today? I thought, what an experiential learning kind of thing to take our biblical narrative, to take something in their community, and then to ask in their own life, who are people that you see around that might feel in exile or might, um, might be in this kind of situation? So that sense of life-wide and then bringing the issues in, that are coming in the teaching and learning into the world. One of the, the best ways that I saw this happen throughout all of our stories, all of our um, portraits, was that people use multiple pedagogical strategies. They didn't rely on one to do it all. So there might be a more teaching and learning classroom kind of setting, but then they would add to it a more intensive a day retreat or, or sometimes that they could do things in a, or like camp or they would, they would bring in other people into that or they'd partner with another ministry to do some things. So the sense of, from a pedagogical perspective, bringing in the student and then thinking about how does this touch all of life and not relying on one environment of teaching and learning to do that, but drawing on uh, different styles to do that. The question uh, that we want to leave you with here is, as we think about confirmation as not only passing on information, but literally transformational learning. How does it actually touch my life in a way that, that um, goes beyond that goes years into the future and helps me think about faith in my everyday life. A question that we want to leave you with is, how are you drawing uh, young people into confirmation ministry that's really a vibrant learning community? Uh, not only for them, but for all kinds of ways, internally within the congregation and as you connect with the world and the context, literally, of which you're a part of. Thanks, Terry. Uh, so context is the transition. So that's the third area of hopeful shift that we want to present to you. And in a sense, it's kind of a synthesis of the other two. Uh, we, when we think of context, we, we think both of the actual congregation, that context, and the ecosystem within which that congregation sits. So the, con the context um, of geography, demographics, economics, theology, all of those things that are happening that, that make the life of that congregation what it is. What we found is that um, the confirmation programs that are really affecting both young people's lives and that life of the wider congregation have begun to sort of build, as we've been saying, on the existing strengths, the character, as I would call it, of the congregation. What are their actual contextual assets and challenges? So an example that I think of is one of the parishes we visited, one of the congregations. They had um, a, a number of young people with learning disabilities that were um, active in the congregation. And rather than have a confirmation program that was more traditional, they built a program around the capacity of all the young people who were interested in being part of confirmation. And so they built a program that was sensitive to the limitations and the strengths of these young people with their learning disability. And they were able to engage the, the students who traditionally you know, had found learning easy in processes that were far more reflective, slowed down, um, much more artistic. And the young people came out of the confirmation program not only knowing about the faith, but also knowing about how to be a companion with someone whose learning style is very, very different from their own. Um, young people told us that, you know, it was great to know about God and to learn about the faith, but I feel like the best thing I learned was about my friend and understanding what it's like to live in a wheelchair and to have a cognitive disability and to have to do, world, do life um, from a very different posture. And so building on the strengths of a congregation that already incorporated people with disabilities in their worship, they built a confirmation program that honored that tradition. There's this ongoing discernment that makes 
these wonderful contextual confirmation programs very local, very organic, and yet they keep an eye out to the wider tradition. They know that they are part of a denomination. They know they're also connected to their connections in the neighborhood. Another church that I visited um, has a long history of being very much involved in community organizing and working with critical issues in that neighborhood. So the young people in the confirmation program were part of an ongoing effort to create bus vouchers for young people who from lower income communities were not able to travel between home and school on an efficient way. There were no school buses. They needed bus vouchers to be able to make it to school um, in time and get from school if they were going to be involved in any kinds of extracurricular activity. And so the confirmation program got to know these kids and got to know the bus routes and got to ride the buses and began to do something that was very practical um, and was in one sense an outreach effort, but in knowing their strengths as a congregation, which was to bring about justice in the world, the confirmation young people found a way to do that for themselves. Another way that we see context as mattering tremendously is that confirmation is no longer a separate ministry event that happens sort of in a classroom, in a wing of the congregation at a certain time of year, and a few people are involved in it. It really has been contextually a process that's owned by the whole congregation. The churches I visited t could tell me that how much they look forward to confirmation every year, how much they look forward to particular traditions. Uh, one church in Oakland, California has something that it calls the I Confirm service. It's part of the Confirm Not Conform curriculum that they developed. And it's the night before the young people are confirmed. And it's the service at which all of the families and friends and relatives of those confirmands come together. They have an opportunity for a very special liturgy in which young people not only share a creed that they've written together that is particularly organic and local to their experience, but they also make their statements of faith. They've chosen a portion of scripture, they tell why they chose it, and they interpret it much like young people in a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah have been asked to do for centuries. And in that tradition, the congregation feels proud and connected, and then they go and have a big dinner and a party. Um, what that looks like is a congregation that people of all generations come out to honor and support the ongoing process of confirmation. So there's shared leadership, for sure, across the actual program, but there's a deeper sense of ownership that is shared by everybody in the congregation. It's part of the story they tell when they're traveling around in their personal lives and saying, this is why I choose to go to St. John's. I'm really proud of the confirmation program we offer, and here are some dimensions of it. And finally, we see context um, becoming critical to this notion that confirmation is this adaptive and resilient formation process. Confirmation becomes what the congregation is. It becomes a reflection for a period of time with a particular group of young people and adults involved in it, a microcosm, as it were, of the wider congregation. But it becomes a part of a context that is committed to lifelong faith formation. And young people know you get to confirmation after a certain process of engagement with the congregation, and the opportunities for them are laid out post-confirmation as a way to continue that journey of faith. So our question for you is, how is confirmation taking into account the particularities of your congregation? What makes it uniquely yours that the young people and the adults in your congregation are proud of? One of the things that we want to note is that these three ships aren't separate from each other. As you can see, they very much uh, play off of each other. And so one of the things that we uh, really want you all to think about wherever your location is, is how is purpose helping you, freeing you up to, in your context, be creative? How is it taking a challenge and making it an opportunity? How is the ability to think pedagogically um, off the map maybe a little bit, or to say, hey, we're really strong with music at our church. W what's a way that we could incorporate the arts and music into our learning about faith? So part of this is context influence pedagogy influences purpose and back and forth. We want to leave you with um, these are not perfect confirmation ministries and they would be the first to tell you that. And I don't think we've come up with if you just do these six things you will have confirmation um, kind of soaring in your setting. 
we want to just acknowledge some places we see some tension. And I think this discernment that Lisa was talking about is really what people are doing with regard to these. The sense of um, how much do we accommodate to the needs of young people or our context, and how much do we stay with the doctrine of our church? Um, are we okay with confirming folks that say, I believe in Jesus, but the Lutheran doctrine I'm not so sure of, or whatever, right? Fill in the blank denominationally. I think this is a tension we see these ministries working with. How do we balance these? Or do we engage kids so well, but we actually never talk about Jesus? You know, right. a lot of kids can talk about really fun confirmation programs, but not actually or, get to the core. Or maybe we're in social justice, but... Mm -hmm but the faith community. So you see a lot of these things trying to balance that. Um, where is gospel comfortable and where is it disruptive? Um, there's an aspect of our faith. There's an aspect of, especially I think of uh, one of them in Michigan, uh, uh, Presbyterian Church, where it, in near Detroit, where it, the gospel is disruptive to people that have uh, taken on a lot of the world and how much are we willing to just go with what the culture wants and how much are we willing to say the gospel is disruptive to our, to some of the things that society is about and you watch some of those tensions about how do we engage young people and tell them about the gospel and be disruptive a bit but how do we also uh, deal with the realities of where they're at. Time. We have confirmation ministries in this study that are short and sweet and we have ones that are longer and later, and everything in between. And so watching what's a doable amount of time, how does time fit with our purpose? If this is our purpose, what are the abilities? Uh, I in, come from a Lutheran tradition that the programs tended to be longer and a bit more on the higher expectation, and they had multiple learning environments. But it came from what Lisa said. They were able to get there because it actually mattered to young people, and then young people would tell other people, and parents would tell other people. I know this is a higher commitment, but it matters. So how do we balance the, the amount of time and the amount of engagement and our purpose? One of the contextual things, I know we're short on time, that I didn't mention is that a number of churches are using hybrid models to use technology to accommodate the realities of time constraints but maintain a level of relationship, continuity, and content. And they're using various web-based platforms to gather with young people individually or in groups in addition to face-to-face -face encounters. And if we're going to rely on mentors, that means we have to have some adults that are willing to talk about their faith. And what I appreciated about this and some of the congregations I've talked about, they didn't wait to get all the, the ducks in the row for the adults. They invited willing, able, uh, faithful people to that will be honest with their questions to, to be with kids. But it does mean long term. What does it mean to nurture adults? What does it mean to nurture the parents that are accompanying these? So one of the tensions here is this is about confirmation, but it's also about adult formation. It's also about congregational formation. And then that goes right to the next one. If you can have a really robust confirmation ministry and then there's nothing on the other side, they don't know what to do. Young people are like, you've, you've brought me in. So it doesn't mean having a quote another ministry per se. It means engaging them into the congregation somehow. So this last slide just gives you a few pictures of um, what we are excited about when we talk about reimagining confirmation. Confirmation matters. It takes a team in many ways and many forms. It builds intergenerational learning communities across congregations. It's an ongoing congregational transformation process as well as one for young people. Reclaiming confirmation means really claiming the way of Jesus in the practices of the ministry that we call confirmation and modeling that. And finally, that we have learned so gratefully from this research that practitioners want to and need to talk to each other. So we encourage you to reach out to your colleagues in your denomination, in your neighborhood, in other traditions, and share what you're doing, because we have found that so enriching and valuable. I was muted. Thanks so much, Lisa and Terry. This was so insightful. I love, um, even, I'm one of the directors, if I didn't introduce myself, with um, Rick Osmer. My name's Katie Douglas. Um, and I've loved hosting these webinars because I feel like each of our researchers adds um, a layer of richness to kind of how we're, we're seeing um, and learning from the congregations that we're visiting and just adds a layer of um, perspective that I'm, I'm really grateful for. Um, just to remind you, if you have, if you'd like to ask a question on the 
the left side of your Google Hangout screen, there should be a little blue blurb bl box that says Q&A. And if you click on that, you can um, submit a question um, if you're interested. Um, we do have a couple of questions, so I'll pose them to you. Uh, we have a question from Wendy. She asks, in thriving programs, is there a sense that confirmation like baptism is a beginning and not an end? found that um, the congregations that are doing really well do see a connection between baptism and confirmation. It's a continuous process. I think that it is, in more places than not that I've observed, it is a reaffirmation of baptism and um, a, an, a claiming of it for oneself. It's the sense that um, it's not, what I would say is really clear to me, it's not a rite of passage. It's not that people are being confirmed to become adults. Most congregations that we visited already see young people as full members of the body of Christ through their baptism. But it is an opportunity for an age-appropriate, context-appropriate, culturally appropriate um, um, adoption of that tradition in language and form and practice that is the young person's personal commitment to Jesus. There's a number of questions, so I want to make sure we get to them. Here's one from Rita. She asks, what are some successful post-confirmation models that you've seen, especially in congregations that confirm younger preteen students? I'll jump in. One of the, a great story, if you go on the Rethinking Confirmation website that we heard this summer at our conference, was one in Kansas City where they actually work with a leader and a small group, and they and they actually move their confirming event earlier in the spring so that those small groups stayed together into high school. And so one of them was using a confirmation ministry to launching kind of a small group ministry as they moved forward. That was a really, uh, and they were very intentional about thinking about the bridge. So that story, that portrait, and that video can tell you more. Yeah, I think the, the most common thing we saw was inviting those young people back into some form of mentoring or some form of leadership. Um, there are some examples where they, the, sort of one of the last tasks of the confirmation program was to engage the young people in a deliberate process of defining their own formation plans, kind of an IEP, individual education plan, as an individual and as a group going forward post-confirmation. There's a lot of parallels to the, the um, catechumenal process, and if you all know anything about the catechumenate, the fourth stage, the fourth task of the catechumenate called mystagogy, that thing that's supposed to happen after baptism, that full embracing of people into the life of the church, is still the challenging piece in confirmation too. So how do we take these newly minted confirmands and um, bring their gifts that they now identify into the life of the congregation and the wider community? Several get involved in social justice efforts at their schools, and then have ways to report that back, the leadership in the public square, back into their churches. We'll do one last question and then um, say goodbye. Um, so this is a question from Mary Beth. Are there some resources available that church leaders can use or provide to families to help educate parents on how lifelong faith is formed? I see many parents who are immature in their faith and lack the tools to raise children in faith. I, I will... Uh, Again, jump in. One of the ones that we did used uh, Faith Incubators, Faith Five, and they actually incorporated that uh, Faith Five with young people. They reiterated it with their confirmation ministry, and they actually used it in one of their worship services. And then they used that Five framework to to bring everybody into a deeper conversation. So that's one really uh, simple place to go. But it then it's working with that in a significant way. Um, Jack Seymour has a book called The Way of Jesus, Following the Way of Jesus, um, and I would say, or Teaching the Way of Jesus, I think it has some really good models for engaging parents in faith formation. And the work that John Roberto does um, and Vibrant Faith do around um, faith practices in the home and the engagement of adults in general uh, and parents in particular and godparents is, is really valuable. Also, I'll do a little shout out to our Building Faith website at the CMT, the Center for the Ministry of Teaching, buildfaith.org. If you come to that site, you'll find a number of models for that. 
Thanks so much for joining us, um, Lisa and Terry, and all your work on the project. I'm so grateful. I want to also thank the Smart Church Project. They are our web designer, internet gurus. They've done all of the technical support for our project so far, and they've helped us to host this webinar. Um, if you'd like to know anything more about the project or learn more or read some of the portraits that um, Terry and Lisa talked about, you can visit our website at theconfirmationproject.com. And just as a, a reminder, if you're in one of the five denominations in our study, you should have received at your congregation an email that um, invites you to participate in the survey, which is ongoing throughout this year. Um, if you need to request another um, survey, you can do that through our website. Um, we'll see you now. I hope, or see you later. I hope you join us for our next webinar.